We're going to be in Hebrews 3, and I've actually been reading in Hebrews from my daily devotional, so um, it's pretty fitting that uh, the Lord would do this, and so I, I hope that he speaks to all of us today. But we will be in chapter 3. Now, the author of Hebrews, the writer, uh, builds on arguments. There's an argument built upon a previous argument built upon a previous argument. And so it's very difficult to just jump in without starting at the beginning. But I'm going to do my best here to uh, give you the back story of chapters 1 and 2. And then we'll read a portion of chapter 2 and we'll dive right in. And so... We don't know who the author of the book of Hebrews is. Um, there's speculation, but really it doesn't matter. It has been regarded as scripture and as given by God um, since it was in circulation among the churches. And so because of its uniqueness and its self-attestation, and it, it uh, became regarded and known as scripture easily among the early churches. And so we have it here in our canon of scripture, and we trust that it is the word of God. And so, in chapter 1, the author establishes Christ's divinity immediately. He confirms that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact expression of his nature, or the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians, Paul writes a, a similar thought in Colossians, saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We have seen all that we need to see of the Father in Christ the Son. He is the complete image, and And even though we see through a glass dimly, we will see him fully one day. But nevertheless, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The author of Hebrews says as much in saying that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. Not only that, but Christ actually sustains all things through the power of his word. And so immediately we see that Jesus is the eternal son to the father. He's actually the agent of creation. And so nothing that was created was created outside of him. And as, it, as the agent of crea- creation, he's also the agent of sustaining creation. He sustains everything by the power of his word. And because he is the son, the eternal son of the eternal father, he is superior He is superior than the angels because to Christ belongs dominion, majesty, and authority. And so that's chapter 1. In chapter 2, we see that though the old covenant was brought about through angels, angel really just means messenger. They deliver messages. They serve Yahweh. The Old Testament is rife with this, uh, this language that he's the Lord of hosts. And what hosts are, are angel armies. Armies of angels. That's incredible. It's incredible. But these angels have one purpose, and that is to serve Yahweh, who is Lord of lords and God of gods. He is the Almighty. There's none to his right or to his left. But yet, Jesus is different. He was made a little lower than they are in his incarnation. But he is superior to angels in every way because they are simply servants. But he is the son, the eternal son. And so if the law, which was brought about through angels, the old covenant, which was established through their message, if it was legally binding, how much more then is, how much more binding and glorious is the word of the son? 
Not only that, but because he is the son, everything will one day be subjected to him because he must have dominion and majesty and authority. Everything will be subjected to him. In verse 9 of chapter 2, it, it actually says that he will be crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, because he was made a little lower than the angels, so that he could be perfected through suffering, that he might be our high priest. And so it's by the grace of God that he might taste death for everyone. That phrase, what that phrase means is he has indeed died, but... His death won't save every person because one must first believe that he is who he says he is and confess as much. But it is the grace of God to us that we might trust in his death and in his resurrection. And the author finishes chapter 2 by saying that in his sonship, in his sonship to the Father, Jesus is not ashamed to call us, that is, those who belong to him in faith, he calls us brothers. He actually quotes Psalm 22, verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So he's quoting David because that psalm's not really about David, even though in the moment David was certainly saying, I will tell of your name, Lord, to my brothers. But through David, as a prophet, we see that this was about Christ. And Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers before his Father. And he shares the Father with us as his brothers. That's glorious. And we're going to see where the, the author of Hebrews takes us with that. And so, if you would, please stand for the reading of the Word of God. We're going to be starting, we're going to be picking up in... Verse 14, stand if you're able. We're going to start in verse 14 of chapter 2 and finish through chapter 3. The Word of God says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house 
if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you harden his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let us pray. Jesus, worthy are you, and we trust that you truly are the son of the household of God. We trust you, and we praise your name because you are our high priest, and you are the apostle of our confession. And so, Everything we have is in you, and we entrust all of ourselves to you. I pray now that you would soften our hearts, that today we would hear your voice, and that we would not be hardened by sin's deception. Lord, soften our hearts. May we walk in the way everlasting by your mercy and grace, and we praise you that you have chosen to build your house And you speak to us because we are your people. Lord, would you be exalted in our midst today? And I pray that we would grow in grace and that we would hear you and trust you always. It's in your name I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. So the title of my message, if you're a note taker, is The House of the Risen Son. The House of the Risen Son. Yes, that is a play off of the old folk song. And if you know the British band, The Animals, then you probably know their version of that song. But yes, the House of the Risen Son. This entire chapter is asserting Jesus as the true heir to all things, primarily because he is the son of the house. He is the son of the house. So what I want to do is several things. And I have three points, and so let me give you my my goal within each point. Jesus is the true heir. I want to see Christ magnified in our hearts, that in all things we would trust him. We would remember who he is. We would not be given to fears or uncertainties, but that we would simply entrust ourselves to him and acknowledge him as truly Lord, because it's his house. And I also would aim today that we would be hearers of the word. 
So my second point is today, if you hear his voice, with emphasis on today, because the author is playing with that word for a reason. And so we'll see that. And also that as the church, as the community of believers, the fellowship of the redeemed, we would together hold firm to the end. And so my goal is to, is to open our eyes, that we might see that the word would open our eyes, that the spirit would open our eyes, to encourage us and to warn us. Um, I think that for those of you that uh, call Rivertown home, and particularly for our covenant members, we've been on a journey over the last few months, and I really believe that the Lord has been sanctifying us and purging us in various ways, and most of you know what those ways are. And I think one of the the uh, convictions that I and the other pastors share is that um, where do we go from here? And I think one of the answers, there's, there's, there's a few answers, is growing as family. We have so much, and it's so evident. And yet, I still think there's more room for it. And we're going to see in the text today the call, the responsibility, and the onus that we have for one another. Because the author here exalts Jesus as the son of the house. And then he warns of the sin of unbelief because they didn't hear. And we too have the same, the same risk. We run the same risk. And the answer to that is together exhorting one another every day while it's still called today. Every day. And so my hope is that we see a greater picture of the beauty and glory that it is to be the church to live in the household of the Son of God. And as members of the household and members of one another, we grow in love, we grow in care, we grow in fraternity because that's the design. That's what Jesus wants. And we're going to see that in the Word today. So, starting in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is, this is very interesting. He, immediately, at the start of this chapter, the author is, said, is asserting that Jesus is our true apostle, okay, and our true high priest. Let me connect some dots. Apostle simply means messenger, and if you remember earlier in giving us uh, an introduction to chapter 1, angels are messengers. And the author of Hebrews is already asserting that Jesus is superior to them. So in saying that he is the apostle of our confession, the author is saying Jesus is the, he's a truer and better angel. He's not an angel. I'm not actually saying that. But you, do you understand the, the, the picture I'm painting? That Jesus is the actual apostle of our confession. Because angels brought the law. They shared a message from heaven to Moses and to kings and to prophets. And they established the old covenant through the word of angels. But Jesus brings the word of the new covenant. He is the truer and better apostle. He's the truer and better messenger. Not only that, and and so in that way, he supersedes the angels. But not only that, he is also our high priest, And so he's the truer and better Moses. Moses was not technically a priest, but Moses was considered the mediator of the law. 
And so while the angels delivered it, in a sense, in a sense, Moses mediates the law to the people. And he stands in the gap between the people and the Lord, at least while much of the law is being delivered. And he's of the same tribe that the priests come from. Okay, we know that the priests come from the line of Aaron, who was Moses' brother. But there's a connection that the author's making here because Moses is functioning much like a priest in mediating the law. And Jesus is the true high priest. He's the truer and better Moses. And so as such, he supersedes Moses. He supersedes Moses. I love that the author honors both the angels and Moses because he acknowledges that the word delivered by angels was reliable. It was reliable. It was so reliable that it was binding. It brought about the law of God. It was reliable, and yet Jesus is still better. Jesus is still better. The author also honors Moses as we see. He says, look, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, verse three, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses was indeed a faithful servant. A faithful servant. And yet, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. We see this interesting picture, and we see this dichotomy being set up immediately here. In verses 2 and 3, Moses was a part of the household of God because a house was being built in the Old Covenant, the people of Israel, and Moses belonged to that house. Moses belonged to that house. But Jesus is the builder of a new house. We see that in verse three, for Jesus has been counted more worthy, excuse me, worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Moses was both a brick in the house, house's walls, and a servant within it. Jesus, however, is the builder. He's the builder. Not only that, Moses was faithful in all of God's household as a servant, as I said earlier. But we see in verse 6 that Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. And so in every way, the new covenant supersedes the old. And it shows a more glorious picture. Later in the book of Hebrews, the author asserts that if the old covenant was perfect, it wouldn't need to be replaced. But it failed to accomplish some things. It's good in that it revealed the righteousness of God and his character and his loving kindness in calling a people who deserved nothing. We saw in the reading of the law today that God mercifully called Israel to himself and set up both blessings but also curses. And it paints a glorious picture of the nature of God. And yet, and yet it was incomplete because the sacrifice of animals was insufficient to pay for our sins forever. And so Jesus' covenant is better. And I'm not going to you know, jump too far down the letter here, but I want you to see that, that it had to be replaced. And so while Moses was completely faithful in the household of God, he did sin, but in terms of a, of a mediator, he was faithful, as the author states. And Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's more glorious. And I want you to see this. The house 
that Jesus is building is this house. The, the Christian church is his house. And he is the builder of it. And if we belong to him in faith, we are members of it. We are members of it. The house in which we stand is a house built by Christ. This house was not only built by Christ, but it is built on Christ. He is its cornerstone. And he rules this house as the son of the father. He rules. And so his word is bond. So therefore, we belong to him because he built the house, he owns the house, and he's going to inherit all things. If we belong to the house, which we do through faith in him, then we belong to Christ. We belong to Christ. Not only that, but he's called us as servants within it. And so now we labor much like Moses did. And our goal is to be found faithful in the house. Faithful in the house. And so, and so just dwell on that for just a brief moment. I love it. The second half of verse 6 says, And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So what is our confidence? Well, we know that we're saved by grace through faith. And the author later asserts that what is evil is an unbelieving heart. The sin that's in discussion here is unbelief that we'll see. And so our confidence is actually just simply faith. It's believing that Jesus is who he says he is, that he really is the son, and that his covenant is really better than Moses's, that we no longer have to continually make sacrifice for sin. We no longer have to continually be reminded of the shedding of the blood of animals, but instead we're reminded of the eternal sacrifice of Jesus because he has served as a son, not simply as a servant. Not simply, he came in the form of a servant that he might be like us, but he has forever been a son to the Father. And as such, the covenant established by him is eternal. And it supersedes the old. It supersedes the old. And so then, our second point, today if you hear his voice, today if you hear his voice, the author quotes Psalm 95, the second half of Psalm 95. I'm going to read the whole psalm. I love this. I think it's important to read the whole thing simply because there's a, a picture here being painted by the psalmist of how ease, the, the call to worship and how easily it is to fall into unbelief. And so if you would, turn with me to Psalm 95. The psalmist writes, presumably David, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. 
So I just want to pause and say, look, the psalmist is invoking worship, saying we must sing to the Lord our God. Why? Because it all belongs to him. It all belongs to him. Everything is in his hands. He made us. He formed us. The seas are his. The winds are his. The depths of even our hearts are his. The dry land is his. The mountains also. The depths of the earth. Everything belongs to him. Everything. Therefore, we come into his presence with thanksgiving. We, he says, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. There is no reason not to worship the creator of all the cosmos. Not only is he worthy in the sense that he made it all and therefore his glory is on display, but he's worthy in the sense that he is owed worship because it's all his. It's all his. And then he continues, verse six, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. Those are strong words. And said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. If you remember, the psalmist is referencing a, uh, an account from the book of Numbers. I mean, throughout Israel's wilderness experience, they murmured and they complained. And I'll... I'll unpack some of that later. But at the waters of Meribah, they, they demanded water. So much so that Moses was upset. And the Lord told him, speak to the rock. And in his anger, Moses strikes the rock, which is a picture of Christ being struck. He strikes it and water pours forth. But Moses was certainly punished for that, but the Lord had been long-suffering over Israel for 40 years for 40 years and they continually put him to the test they did not worship do you see the psalmist is saying we must worship we must recognize him because all things belong to him let us not harden our hearts today if you hear his voice worship don't fall into unbelief and the author of Hebrews is saying the same thing. The house belongs to Jesus, the Son. It's all His. Therefore, worship Him. Don't let your heart become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In the same way that our Maker has made us and established us and has revealed Himself to us, our salvation rests on Jesus, the Son. And this house is His. And so... We must be warned, warned of unbelief. And so he quotes Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness. And so because of that 
in quoting Psalm 95, today, today, we have the opportunity to do one of two things. Either to obey faithfully or to fall into evil unbelief. The question for today and every subsequent day that will become today is this. Do you hear him? Do you hear him? Today, if you hear his voice, do you hear him? Some of you might say, I want to hear him. I want to, but I don't. I haven't heard him. I don't know how to hear him. And I understand. There are seasons and nights in the soul of even the believer who cries out and says, Lord, where are you? Have I not heard from you? I've been there recently. But we must be reminded that he's always speaking to his people. Jesus is the faithful builder of the house and the faithful son over it. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to abandon his house like a construction project. It won't happen. It won't happen. We are meant, if we are called to Christ and trust him in faith, we are meant to experience his love, his grace, and his power so that he is glorified as the excellent builder of the excellent house. His name's on the line. He's not abandoning us because we belong to him. Also, Jesus, he tells parable, t- parables of counting the cost. Jesus is not like the fool who doesn't count the cost before starting the project. He knows full well what building this house costs. And guess what? He's already paid the price in full. He's paid it in full. He will finish what he started. Because he is faithful to his father and to his word, he is also faithful to us. And so in his faithfulness, he is always speaking. If you think you can't hear him or haven't heard from him, persevere, continue in his word. He is speaking always. He is speaking always. All we have to do is open the word and listen. And listen. So the call today is, the call is today if you hear his voice. Today. And I warn you, I warn you though, oftentimes he will speak to us things that we do not want to hear. (laughs) And when it's a word (laughs) that we're not ready for, or a word that, isn't quite the answer we were looking for. Will we trust him? Will we trust him? Or will we harden our hearts in unbelief? So will we listen? And if we hear his voice, which we will, if we're actually listening, will we obey? That's the question for us. If we allow our hearts to become hardened like the faithless generation of Israel, then we're no better than them. 
we're no better than them. And, and, and that's, that's a dire warning to us all, as we will see. In unbelief, they put the Lord their God to the test. All of their sins were the fruit of unbelief. They murmured. They complained. They actually went as far to regret their salvation from Egypt. They said, it was better for us in Egypt. At least we had meat to eat. At least we had water. We had shelter. We weren't roaming in this wilderness. So what does the Lord do when they murmur and they complain and they regret the display of his power and their salvation? Well, in wrath, he kills them. He, he lets their bodies fall in the wilderness. The word says, it says it right here, as I swore in my wrath, the Lord is allowed to swear because all things are from him. And he swears by himself. He swears by himself. It means he makes an oath with himself. He makes an oath that they will not enter his rest. They're out. They are out of the covenant promises. I mean, that's, that has to stir us. That has to stir us. They tasted and saw that the Lord was good. And yet they continually continually complained they rejected his mercy he became fed up with them and so he swore in his wrath they will not enter my rest they're out they're out and so in light of Israel's wicked generation what must we do to hear his voice today and not harden our hearts. How do we listen? How do we hear? Besides what I've already said, there's certainly this personal piece of going to the word. And then here's our, our second component. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to be reminded every day of the goodness of God in Christ in the deception of sin that lies around every corner. We have to be reminded every day while it is still called today. We must watch ourselves. But more importantly, the emphasis here is we must watch one another. It says, exhort one another every day, every day. Exhortation, it's a very strong word. It's a, it means strong appeal, this urging, this urging. So it's, it means that I'm, I'm looking at you all as my brothers and sisters and saying, hey, let's continue in the faith. Let's strive for excellence in Christ, for faithfulness, for humility, for love, for care. And if I see sin, I'm obligated because of Christ to say, what are you doing? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And you have the same obligation for me. That you say, David, this is a bad decision. <laughs> David, why are you in the dumps? 
Has Christ not provided and met your every need? Will he not continue to do so? This is the call of the church. This is what it means to be the church. You cannot do this alone. It's clear just in the language. Take care, brothers. Exhort one another every day, one another. To be the church means to be family because we belong to the household of Christ and since we are in the household, not by ourselves, but with one another as members of the house and members of one another, we are family. And we have, we have to live like it. We need each other. It's by design. I'm convinced by the scriptures that the church, living like the church, does at least does several things. The church living like the church is the greatest threat to sin and to the enemy. Christ himself promises that the gates of hell will not stop what he is building. So the church, living like the church, is the greatest threat to sin and to the enemy. Not only that, but the church, living like the church, is the greatest protection for believers, no matter our maturity. This is not a solo road, but in being united to Christ, we're also united to one another. And he's established us as family that we would look out for one another, that we would encourage one another, care for one another, meet one another's needs, guard one another, fight for one another. I'm convinced by the scriptures that the church, living like the church, is the greatest apologetic of the Christian faith to the watching world. Jesus himself says that when the world sees our love for one another, they will know we belong to him. We belong to him. If we do this, if we do this, if we commit to being the house of God with Jesus Christ as Lord over it, we will share in Christ. We will share in Christ because it is this practice, it's this walking in our faith that is the guarantee that we will last till the end that we will endure till the end. Anything short of a faith in Christ and a commitment to his will and his ways, which is living like the church, anything short of that, there's no guarantee you'll make it. But if we do those things, if we live like the church, we will hold our original confidence to the very end. You see, looking at verses 16 through 19, if we don't walk committed to Christ and to one another, then we most certainly, as I said, will not survive to the end. Because that wicked generation of Israel, they started well. They started well. They heard the voice of God, they heard it, they were scared. It was like the boom and roar of thunder and water. And Moses went on their behalf up the mountain. But they heard his voice. They read, they heard his law. And yet they still rebelled. They still rebelled. 
They were saved out of Egypt, being led by Moses, and yet they still sinned. Don't miss this parallel. The author of Hebrews is not saying this flippantly. They were saved, but did not inherit the promises. The same warning is for us. We see in Hebrews 6 and 10 that there are people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and yet have walked away. And I believe in perseverance of the saints, but there is a mystery to apostasy. It happens and it's real. In Israel, it serves as a warning to us. They were saved. They actually made it out of Egypt. The land was theirs to inherit, and yet they still sinned. They had every need met in the wilderness. I want you to know I'm preaching to myself right now. They had every need met in the wilderness, and they still complained. Therefore, they died in the wilderness and were excluded from the covenant promises of rest, all because of unbelief. All because of unbelief. Every sin, every transgression, every bit of idolatry starts with unbelief. If, you're un- if, if you haven't thought about this before, I mean, just consider whether you're worrying that Christ won't lovingly supply our every need or whether you're choosing the temporary pleasures of sin over the eternal promises of Christ. It's all unbelief. It's all listening to the voice of the enemy when he says, did God really say this? That can't be true. Is he really going to supply your every need? Is he really your comfort? And your solace in every, every ounce of suffering and every bit of grief, will he be there when the bottom drops out? Does he actually love you enough to keep sanctifying you? Or are you really just going to struggle with this sin for the rest of your life? Or he'll forgive me but I can just taste this sin for a little bit. I, 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 think, I think I'll just, eh, there's mercy on the other side of this. I'll just, I'll just do what I want for now. All of that is unbelief. All of that. And so the, the call, the charge to us is today, today, if you hear his voice, will you obey? Or will you allow your heart to be hardened? And so as we conclude, I just want to remind us of the points I previously made. And may this be a a blessing to us, a benediction of sorts. May we always remember that this house is Christ's. He has been faithful over it, and he will always be faithful over it. He is the Son who will be the ruler over all things at the last. Therefore, we can trust him. We can trust him. A better house is being built, and its founder is Christ, our Savior. We have everything we need in the resurrected Christ. The fullness of mercy, 
grace, love, and power has been revealed to us in him. Secondly, let us hear his voice today and faithfully obey while it is still called today. There is no promise for tomorrow. So may we trust and obey him every day that becomes another today. Faithfulness is choosing daily to follow Christ, to die to self and say, you are who you say you are. Your word is your word. And even though I don't understand, I give my all to you. That's faithfulness. It's choosing that every day. That will get you to the end, I promise. And thirdly, let us watch ourselves and exhort one another so that we are not deceived by sin. Let us do that every day, every day. It is given to us because it's the design. It's the design. It is given to us that we grow as a brotherhood, as a family, for the name of Jesus. It's all for him. Our church as a functioning family is a declaration of Jesus to the watching world. Jesus is indeed faithful. We can trust him to the very end. Let's pray. Lord, worthy are you. You are the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so we trust you. We trust you. We know that we belong to you in simple faith and simple obedience. It is by grace that you call us to yourself and it is by grace you even enable us to follow you. And so we praise you because it all rests on you. It all rests on you. You are the builder of the house. You are the cornerstone of it and you are Lord over it. And so I pray that our hearts would be enlarged today to worship you more fully that daily we would choose worship, we would choose joy, we would choose praise, we would choose faithfulness. Please, please protect us and guard us from unbelief. May none of us fall like the wicked generation of Israel did. Lord, please have mercy on us for your name's sake. It's in your name I pray. Amen.